Welcome to the Black Sheep Podcast, brought to you by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Isaacs. We want to know what it really means to be a black sheep and work out how we can all get a bit better at going against the grain. We're going to be asking some of our favourite black sheep about the rules they've broken to get them where they are today. Black Sheep is a podcast about rules and how to break them. Today's black sheep is Porna Bell. Porna is an award-winning author, journalist and former executive editor for the Huffington Post UK. In 2015, tragedy hit when Porna's husband Rob took his life after spending years secretly suffering with a heroin addiction and chronic depression. Since his death, Porna has become one of the most prominent spokespeople for mental health and suicide awareness in men. She has written two beautifully moving books, Chase the Rainbow and In Search of Silence. Both explore her experience of grief, trauma and finding purpose in an increasingly anxious world. Porna is an ambassador for mental health charity Calm and is an ambassador for Mental Health Mates set up by Bryony Gordon. Hello, Porna, and thank you for joining our game-changing roster of Black Sheep. Thank you for having me. Considering the premise of the podcast, um, I wondered whether you would describe yourself as a Black Sheep. I mean, I would definitely describe myself as a Black Sheep, but I didn't really think of myself as such when I started out, because I think like a lot of people, um, you try and fit in Mm. as much as you Mm. possibly can. And I guess it's when you reach a tipping point with your career where you realise that you've got power and um, experience accumulated under your belt that you're able to actually very consciously harness the things that you may have been unconsciously doing in your career thus far. Mm. Um, But also, I think, incorporate a lot of the life lessons by that, you know, which would have affected your life by that point and actually use them as a source of power versus worrying that people are going to find you out. Yeah. You wrote something in your book, which I think kind of matches exactly what you said and might drive us straight into rule one, actually, which said, when you are in an echo chamber, it is almost impossible to find the frequency of your own voice amid the din and push of others. And I think that's exactly what you've just kind of beautifully articulated. Will you throw us into rule one, please, Borna? Right. So rule one is don't bring yourself to work. And uh, obviously we are talking about metaphorically, not physically, (laughs) but um, it's about the idea that in order to succeed or to get promotions or to climb up the ladder, you need to pretend to be someone else. So you're almost um, portioning off parts of yourself that uh, your company or the work environment that you're in might not think are particularly attractive or good. And I feel that when you tend to do that, and I can only speak uh, from my own experience, is that, sure, you may be able to do a good job, you know, if you end up doing that, but there are limits to that kind of success. Mm -hmm. Because when you're operating like that, I don't really think you're operating from what is your full power, which really is what makes you you, whether or not some of those things are good things and some of those things are bad things. And I think that, you know, when I started off in journalism, my um, 
I was very lucky that I was recommended into a job uh, through someone that I had known at university. But it was a really niche, really small, like Asian local newspaper, mm. you know, and I found it impossible to get work experience or any kind of opportunities in in the nationals or any sort of form of mainstream women's journalism because I just didn't have the context, didn't go to private school, you know, didn't just didn't have access to that network. Uh, and definitely as someone, if you're looking at things from a visibility point of view, you know, not only did I work definitely at that time in an industry where women were by far in the minority, um, when you look at women of colour who work in journalism, like it's, you know, it's minuscule, mm. absolutely. And I think that for a, quite a number of years, so I worked in Asia media and, and I worked within, you know, what I what I knew and, and the comfortability of it. But I decided that I needed to move into mainstream journalism. And if I didn't move, I would end up stagnating uh, because it's it's quite difficult, I think, to stay in a job for more than, you know, three to four years, especially your first job mm. um, and continue to innovate and grow. And so I made that change, which was a baptism of fire for sure. But when I moved around within that, and it was a corporation, so I worked for News UK uh, at the time, this was my first mainstream job, I very much got the impression that there was a way that you acted and that you behaved and that the type of people who were in favour, let's say, mm. with senior brass, just knew how to navigate it really well and I had no clue what I was mm. doing. And uh, there was sort of a particular point where I'd, gone freelance I was absolutely terrible at it and I decided to come back into permanent work um, but I, I decided that it was a make or break and that I just couldn't really go continue in print journalism which is what I was doing at the time I found it uh, to have a very rigid structure and you know harking back to what I just said about there being a, a certain nepotism about it and I just didn't I still didn't really have the connections and I think I remember calling up this one women's magazine to inquire about freelance work uh, just to ask for you know who was was the best person to contact and they just said oh well you know if I was you I wouldn't really bother because it's really hard to get freelance work and mm. this is and I mean I don't I don't know why that person would say that but it, I just found the whole thing so off-putting and I realized that whatever it was about me I was not going to be able to navigate print journalism to the level of success that I wanted to achieve, if at all, actually, I'd even be able to get my foot in the door. And at that time, digital journalism was really taking off. And it seemed like there was less hierarchy about it, that there was a lot more fluidity around roles and abilities and so on. So I took that jump and I just left print journalism and went into online. And it was incredible. It was, was that the Huffington Post? No. So oh. this was working at MSN for Microsoft, uh, which, you know, again, going into a major corporation from having been freelance, that was a, a really steep learning curve. Mm. And from Microsoft, I then obviously went to HuffPost, which is owned by Verizon. But um, both of those environments, I would say, were very corporate in that they were American corporations that, you know, had outposts and stuff in the UK. But they were and they were benign to a degree in the sense that, you know, they cared about the culture that you were in. They cared about to, you know, things like healthcare and so on and wanted to kind of keep you well and healthy. Mm. But at the same time, like with a lot of companies, there were quite rigid appraisal systems. And again, this unspoken rule about how you navigate those corridors of power where you you might kind of not know what you're doing, but you'd see how other people would progress. Mm. And I think definitely in Microsoft, that was something that I learned in terms of professionalism and so on. 
but that you couldn't really move very much in and around it. You know, there was limitations to the technology that you were using. And I still very much felt that you had to behave in a particular way. And if you didn't, then you just wouldn't be able to get further. And what way was that? Um, I think that you had to be very confident about speaking about your achievements. You had to kind of be the loudest person in the room. There were certain perimeters for success, uh, which you had to meet, whether those were traffic targets or whatever. Mm. And I'm not saying this, um, you know, because I feel like this is the state of affairs in lots of different companies, not just specific companies that I've worked for, is that because we do live in an unequal system and an unequal structure that your voice or that my voice wasn't listened to as much or it didn't carry as much authority or sway with it as, let's say, a man who held exactly the same job title and position as me. So it was, it basically took about two to three times the amount of work mm. to be heard as someone who was from a different demographic or gender sat next to me. And that was something I found quite hard to overcome and I didn't really know how to do that. And then I switched jobs and I moved to HuffPost where it was a lot easier because it was a digital first company. You know, it was a very, and still is, you know, a company that tries to disrupt uh, the order of things, which I found absolutely refreshing mm. because you can try things out and um, and innovate and have different ways of thinking. And it's not something that you're really penalized for. And then leading up to this point where um, where my husband, Rob, you know, we he was going through a lot of stuff and I was helping him with a lot of stuff at home. And so things kind of were reaching this point where uh, there was this massive stressful situation going on at home um, but I would kind of have to leave that at the door when I got to work and go into meetings and speak to people and manage them and keep my head held high and not really tell anyone what was going on or even that things were really stressful for me at home because I just felt that no one really wanted to know about that. I was really ashamed about it. And also I just felt like that wasn't what I was being paid for. So there was a point where I think for like about a couple of years, I literally felt like I was split in half. Mm -hmm. And all of my energy, any excess energy that I had was invested in keeping this from the various parties involved. So whether that was stuff I was keeping from my friends and family, whether it was stuff I was keeping from people at work. And then he passed away in 2015 and it was very shocking and it was unexpected and it was like this bomb had just been thrown off mm. in every aspect of my life and I just remember when I came back to work this was about three weeks after the funeral and um I just was so I didn't want to do it you know but I knew I had to do it because the alternative was sitting at home mm. alone which yeah. I which was w way worse than having to navigate awkwardness at work but I very quickly realized that people at work beyond a couple of people didn't really know what had mm. happened and there was this colleague of mine who's a friend but you know not a particularly close friend and we were having this meeting and he just said oh you know I'm really sorry to hear what happened and and then we, as we were talking I realized that he didn't really know what had happened and mm. I said you know what do you who, what do you think has happened like who do you think I've lost and he said oh you know um I've been told that you lost someone close to you. And I said, well, it was my husband. Mm. And his face just dropped because it's very different to, you know, a death of any kind is a tragedy and it's a trauma, especially when it is a suicide and it's so sudden. But the death of a spouse is unlike, 
it's unlike anything. Like mm. it's absolutely unlike anything. I think um, that most people will know or experience because it's not something you're supposed to experience at the age of thirty-four. Mm. And I just realised that. I would have to kind of navigate these endless meetings and sit in rooms with people and this thing just being kind of hidden inside mm -hmm. of me where we then have like endless awkward conversations. And I was just like, no, I can't do it. It's just, this is, this conversation alone was exhausting. Mm -hmm. I don't want to dance around the fact that this is some terrible thing that has happened to me. It's not like a divorce or something else where I could possibly go into a room and pretend it hasn't happened. Like this is completely stripped off like every layer of mm -hmm. skin. And I think at that point I made a decision that I could not, I could not, and I absolutely had no capacity to live a life from that point onwards where I had to hide anything about myself or lie about mm. something, you know. So I decided that I was just going to be very open about it. And it was absolutely terrifying at first because, I, I mean, I'm lucky in that fine, I was managing lots of writers and I didn't really do a huge amount of writing in that particular role as executive editor. But I basically wrote a blog. Like, that's how yeah. it all came about. And that blog was everything that I wanted to say to Rob, but it was also everything that I wanted everyone around me mm -hmm. to know. Like, I wanted them to know that I didn't view Rob's death as selfish. I wanted them to know that there was, like, a lot of love in our relationship, you know, that I wasn't angry, that I felt very strongly that this is something that we kind of needed to talk about. That The reason why there was so many taboos and so much awkwardness was because no one talks about mm. it. And I could, like, when that blog went live, I could see, you know, a couple of colleagues, like, not really knowing what to do. And that was the last of it. Like, once we kind of passed that brief awkwardness where they didn't really know where to look and they didn't really know what to say, it was like the two halves of my life were kind of together. And I could not even, I could not even envisage going back to a life where they were separate before. But it's scary as hell. Yeah. But the the place that I kind of stand in and that I operate in in terms of my professionalism, in terms of my personal life now, I don't know how to describe it in any other way other than it is completely free from fear. Like I'm not mm. scared that someone's going to find me out because it's kind of out there. Yeah. And I have no problem talking about it if someone wants to ask me within reason. But it's amazing how for most of my life I felt so it was so important not to show mm. people those other parts of me. Mm. And isn't it interesting as you talk about the Huffington Post being a place where you are or they honour well-being, mm. that something that is so fundamental, which is grief, is not there's no room for it. I mean, the, yeah, the thing is, it's. When you say there's no room for it, it's just that I don't think we have a vocabulary for it. Yeah. Like, I don't think any of us really know. And I'm saying this to you as someone who has experienced a, a grief. I still, when I hear someone's loved one has passed away, there's a part of me that thinks, should I say something because I don't want to upset them? Yeah. I mean, obviously... I kind of, you know, change gears and then I do say something or I just ask them if they were right or do they want to talk about it? And then they have the option to say, no, please, can we change the subject? Or yes, I would like to talk about it. Yeah. But I still, that's a legacy from an entire lifetime of really grief being completely absent from conversations. Yeah. And stories that yeah. we were brought up with. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, you know, when, so I understand the 
I understand the, the indecisiveness about it. I understand that people are really worried, especially when it comes to work colleagues, you know, they're worried about should they say something. But the only thing I can kind of say is, especially, for example, during my first year of when I worked there, and definitely I would say the sort of second year, uh, even now, I mean, it's not something that goes away. Like mm. in that first year, that feeling was with me every single nanosecond of that day. Like someone asking me a question about something that is already in my thoughts all the time is not going to be the thing that upsets me. Mm. Like that's not going to be the thing that's going to make me any sadder than I already am. But I think that we, we're we viewing it from our point of view, which is, oh, you know, I'm, do I'm having a good day and then I thought about this sad thing and I don't want to think about this sad thing, so I'm going to try and distract myself with, with something else. And that's fine because you and I have the luxury of thinking like that because we're not directly going through that grief at this point in time. But if I'm on the days when I'm being less kind about it, I think that that awkwardness is I think it's selfish and I think it's more about the other person or rather it's more about you or if I'm thinking it's more about me than it is about care for the other person. Mm. Because my awkwardness should not be the thing that prevents me from offering like two minutes of comfort to someone else because I know that half an hour later when I'm not in their company or an hour later, I get to go about my life. Yeah. You know, I get to go back into it whereas they're still stuck in it. And I, I understand the care and I understand the compassion that some people have in not wanting to upset the other person. But if it really was compassion, you would overcome your awkwardness mm. to say something. And put yourself in that vulnerable yeah. place too. I think that leads us on perfectly mm. to your second rule. Yeah, push on through it. So I think that my... Most of my working career has definitely been, and I think this is fairly true of a lot of other industries where, you know, especially when you're grafting, you work really long hours, you don't really complain about it. Uh, you might go to the pub with your colleagues after work and blow off some steam and so on. And when things get tough, you don't necessarily really voice that they're tough because anyone who voices that things are tough means that you can't quite hack it and it's a bit weak and and so on. And that's definitely the environment that I came up in. And I would say, regardless of com of whatever company I worked for, that's my industry, pretty mm -hmm. much. And so I think that when you are going through something that is really mentally full on, um, you just think you need to push past it. You know, maybe if you just push past it a little bit harder, then you'd be okay, or you'd, yeah. you'd get past whatever the difficulty is, whereas actually that to me is a sign that your brain is giving you and your body mm. that things are not okay. And yeah. And how did that manifest for you? So I think for me, it's just the, in a number of ways. So the, the biggest thing obviously is that grief is not linear at all. And I think that when you are in a structured environment or even not just a structured environment, even with friends and family, mm. they assume that there are stages where, you know, by by this point, you'll be this. And by, you know, halfway down the line, you might be a little bit better and so on. And it's true to say that with time and with work on yourself, it gets easier to live with, but your grief doesn't really go away. And there are still days when, you know, you just can com be completely waylaid by it. And I think at work in my first year, 
I just thought, okay, I'm, you know, feeling marginally better or less worse, which is the (laughs) spectrum that I was operating on at that time. But I just got to work and there's this alleyway that, you know, the office kind of Mm. sat on a shortcut and I just could not, I couldn't, I stood at the top of the alleyway and I just couldn't walk down it. And then I started crying. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm crying at the top of the alleyway. Someone's going to see me. And then someone saw me. And I just thought this is just like a box of nightmares. Like, Mm. I really don't cry at work. I don't want someone to see me. And this colleague of mine just said, look, is everything okay? And I was just like, I don't know what is wrong with me, but I can't walk down the alleyway and I can't, can't do work. I don't know what to do. And, and I just said, I'm so sorry. I'm crying and apologized a thousand times. And she just said, look, this is okay. Just go home, like get back on the train, go home email your boss, it's going to be okay, maybe take today off, maybe work from home. But she was like, maybe don't go down here today, Like mm-hmm. that's okay. And she was very kind and very soft about it. And I did, I like got on the train and the minute I got home, I felt better. Mm-hmm. I felt a lot better, exhausted. Um, but I don't know that, I, I think I felt that I had a point to prove to myself and by not literally physically being able to walk down a road had somehow failed some sort of test Mm. and that to me was that I should have listened to myself a bit better I should have been listening a bit more closely in the morning when I was feeling the prickles of uncertainty and not sure whether I was going to go to work and I didn't and I feel like sometimes your brain just literally will not give you the option so it's let you it's let you continue down that Mm. path for some time and you ignore it ignore it ignore it and then it says right okay we're just gonna have to take over and then you know in the bigger sense of the word it's when you hear about people who have nervous breakdowns who uh, are unable to go back to work for months and months upon end and it's not because that person doesn't want to go to work it's because you physically and mentally just can't do it because you've ignored all of those signposts that clearly were there, but we live in this kind of world and this industry where you're taught to ignore it. Mm. And they seemed completely, completely at odds with each other. And I think that with grief, for sure, it it got to the point where I realised that it wasn't linear, that I still had a lot of work to do. This was like two years after Rob passed away. And that, however, work would probably expect me to either carry on as normal or to... Uh, exceed what I was doing and I was Mm. not capable of it and I knew that I had to hand my notice in and take some time out of it and that quote that you said at the beginning which was around the echo chamber was that it also got to a point because I was asking people for their opinion of what I should do Mm. and the majority of it was the same And none of us, which was basically, oh, it'll get better. This is, you know, what you get paid the salary for. Uh, Why don't you just see how it goes? Why don't you go on a holiday? But none of it was really around quitting my job Mm -hmm. or taking a step like that. And I understand it because why they, a person can only advise you so far from their own experience. If they would never quit their job or never give something up like a position like that. Or have never gone through what you've gone through. Exactly, yeah. Then it's not within their capability of saying that. But I very much felt that in London particularly, the pressure, it's not like anyone directly said the words to me, but I felt that here the goals of money and success and position and prestige are 
the most important. And I think very often we sacrifice a lot at that altar. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes it's very easy to forget that there are other options. If you have the capabilities and if you have the money and if you are able to do it, that there is there are other options. Because when someone said to me, oh, but why don't you just see how it goes? I was like, because I literally will need to, I will physically not and mentally not be in a position where I can do this job for much longer. So what do I do? Do I hold on to it out of pride? Um, or do I kind of make a decision that's, that's a decision that I chose for myself mm -hmm. rather than it being made for me? And do you think there was an element of your newfound understanding of the fragility of life that led you to break that rule or that convention, which is stick at it, push, like you say, push on through? Yes and no, in that I don't think it was ever something as light bulb moment as Rob passed away, so I should live my life to the fullest because life is precious and fragile. Mm. Because I think that for a lot of time after he passed away, I couldn't even grasp a thought like that because mm. the majority of my thinking was was pretty much survival. It was like, I just need to try and get to the next day. And I don't really know how that's possible, but somehow at some point I will do that. I think that what hit home to me, especially when it came to work, because I know that people say this and it's such a cliche that it's just a job, it's this, it's that. My work is very important to me. I have invested a lot of hours into my career. It gives me a lot of joy. So it's not just a job for me. You know, it's something that I'm very passionate about and that I wholeheartedly chose for myself because I think it makes it sound like it's something throwaway. And to me, mm. work isn't something that's yeah. throwaway. It's part of your purpose. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but it's more like there was a choice that was sort of given to me by myself, which mm. is you can continue what you're doing now and the consequences are not going to be good. Like they're just not going to be good. Or you can make a decision that might jolt you out of everything that you know. It might be the wrong decision. It might be um, you want to come back after a few months or whatever. But at least you'll then know. Because with the other decision of like doing the same job day in and day out, um, feeling completely burnt out and tired and hopeless, and that's a given. Like that's going to definitely happen mm. if you stay in that job. So it's more like... Um, there have been roles that I have done and definitely I know other people have are currently doing and have done where you just stay in the job because it's better than the unknown. And also because there is a practicality to um, needing to pay your mortgage or your rent and your food bills and so on. Mm -hmm. But I think it just got to the point where the fear of whether or not I would have another job again or whether I would be able to earn money again... Um, that was smaller than the fear of actually going mad. Mm. And that's really what it boiled down to. So how did you do it? How did you get out? Um, I mean, I don't tend to rush into decisions, um, especially ones that, that are to do with my life. And also because I, you know, I'm very conscious that when, when I was doing my job and when I was in London and so on, um, I had a very solid support network and I was very yeah. cautious about removing myself from that and what the consequences might be so it reached the point where I just thought I, I can't I can't do this job anymore um, and I can't live in London anymore and I don't really don't want to 
And then I sat on that decision for about a month. And then I decided when I was going to hand my notice in. This whole thing between me deciding and handing my notice in and then actually physically leaving the building was six months. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, you know, like an overnight thing. And during that time, I planned. I planned for what was going to happen before I went away, what I would be doing while I was away, and definitely what I was go what was going to happen for me in terms of work mm -hmm. when I come back. Because mm -hmm. I think when people listen, uh, hear about a decision like that, they assume that spontaneity has to be, you know, a massive part of it. And spontaneity is fine, but for me, I had to be able to plan within that because otherwise, if I had no structure at all that for me is a very terrifying place and i i don't like it and mm. there's there's a distinction between operating outside of your comfort zone and just being complete freefall around it and kind of working out what that was was actually quite an interesting lesson mm. i wonder if we should run into rule three okay <laughs> Just say yes is rule three. Um, a very hard learned lesson in terms of breaking this rule. You know, my um, in terms of my cultural upbringing, I come from a South Asian family. And I'm not saying that this is, you know, the, these behaviours are specific or exclusive to South Asian families, but definitely amongst women, this idea of duty and obligation and placing that um, above, well above your own needs is something that I was taught from a very, very young age. Mm. And it's something that my mother, I think, feels quite strongly. And she will say yes to something. And even if the circumstances have changed or, you know, she's really not well or they're just, n it's not the right time. She will persevere with it with bloody mindedness because she said yes and she doesn't break her word. And for a very long time, I believed that that was the right thing to do. And uh, to great, great cost, actually. So when Rob was in recovery and we were trying to portray this image of, you know, a normal married life to other people, we said yes to a lot of stuff because we didn't really want people to know that he was really struggling and we were going through a tough time. Like what? Like going to people's weddings, like going to their kids' birthday parties, um, you know, like buying presents for people when like we literally had like no money and we were really, really badly in debt. And it's this whole keeping up appearances thing. And also because, you know, you feel like you, you should be doing it. And it, I re just remember this one point where it just stretched us like so thin. And I think after he passed away... um. I this was a very quick realization actually which was I don't have to say yes to anything I don't want to say yes to ever again and I had a brief conversation with my mother about it where she said well there are some things you know you you should say yes to and I said no I, I really don't I was like if I am a dutiful daughter and a good friend and a good sister those things should come organically and naturally. And absolutely, there are times when you, you know, put yourself out for someone, you help them mm. move house mm. or, you know, you just, you. but uh, to me, that's being a good friend. Like that's not sort of putting my own needs above and beyond, uh, below uh, someone else's. And I feel like for a lot of my life, that is what I did. And I had a realisation that actually the majority of people do seem to operate 
not all, but some will operate within what's best for them. Mm. And I almost wanted to kick myself when I realized that I had agreed to go on holidays that I couldn't afford. I had agreed to go to events when I was not feeling sociable because like my life was literally crumbling behind closed doors. What made you feel that pressure, do you think? I think it's because people ask you and you feel really bad saying no mm. because you then have to work through their disappointment. But also it, it is the expectations that you learn from people as a child of what your duty is and what you're supposed to do. So if a dutiful if a dutiful friend is, for example, turning up to like every single social engagement, even though you might be completely burnt out and have loads of stuff on at work, you're kind of going to do it unless you learn otherwise that it comes at a bit of a cost to you. And I'm assuming at the time when Rob was alive and you were saying yes to things, at that time, were you holding a secret about his addiction? Yeah, like no one knew about it. So right. it was something that he didn't really want other people to know about. Uh, it's not my story to tell, so I had to respect that. Um, if, for example, we had agreed to go to, um, you know, I don't know, someone's house or a party or whatever as a couple, and he decided to cancel at the last minute because he wasn't feeling well um, and I would still have to kind of mm. go on my own to honour the obligation like why did I do that you know because it was excruciating because mm. I would go I would have to answer questions about his absence I would then have to socialise with other people while at the back of my head being so worried about whether he was okay mm. and I don't know why I did that and I well I do I know why I did that because that's kind of what you're supposed to do. And if you, you know, are invited to someone's party, then you go and you put on a happy face. And I guess you're not only doing that for the other person, for example, the arrangement that you're mm. attending, but you're also doing that for your partner. Yeah. You're saying yes for their welfare too, mm. or to, to help them. Do you think that Rob felt a pressure to say yes? I mean, I don't think he was that type of person. He was very, like, upfront about things when it came to what his views were. Mm -hmm. I think that he would say yes to me mm. because I think that he didn't want to disappoint me. But then it would always, it was almost always be a disappointment anyway because he would say yes to something that he physically and mentally was not capable of doing and would then literally cancel half an hour before we're due to leave yeah. to go to whatever it was. And that happened over and over and over again. And each time was there a sense of, belief that maybe this time the yes yeah, would be honest. Absolutely, yeah. because every time it was like, no, I'm definitely gonna do it. I really want to do it. I think it'll be great. Then I'll kind of like notice this, you know, slowing down as we're like supposed to be getting ready. And then I know in my heart of hearts that he's not going to be coming out. Mm. And then he would cancel. And that happened a lot. So I think that when he did pass away and when I just had no like there was no barrier between me and being socially nice or being in groups of people like being in groups of people was unbelievably hard um and I felt silly saying that to people I felt silly saying oh you know what I I can't because it's a big group of people and I just feel really uncomfortable around like groups bigger than about five or six people but the alternative was to then just persevere with it and go ahead anyway um which was always worse than had I said no mm. in the first place. So how did you learn to say no? And does it kind of connect with after you left the Huffington Post and you took some time out for you, was that a journey of rediscovering your boundaries? No, the boundaries thing came very quickly. So I was at HuffPost for two years after Rob passed away. 
And those boundaries came up almost immediately. Mm. It was very much, um, I can't explain it in any other way other than there was nothing left in the barrel mm. to give. Yeah. Like there was, you know, I, I could not hide behind anything because there was just nothing there. And I think that there were maybe two or three times when I had gone to someone's birthday party and I literally left after half an hour mm. and they didn't press me and they didn't say, you know, oh, why don't you stay or whatever. But I, I like I think the last time I had done that and I left, uh, I just thought, actually, OK, you know, I need to learn from this and I need to be able to be a bit better at catching this. And when I feel able to go to someone's event, then I will do it. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm, you know, I'm not a misanthrope, like I will do it, but just now is not the right time. Mm. And I think it was very much trial and error, but it's it for sure is about paying attention to that rather than always saying yes to things. Mm. And then in terms of the public sphere, I first met you, at, um, well, I first met you at the Huffington mm. Post, but then I followed you at like the sycophant I am to the Being a Man um, <laughs> Festival. And I heard you speak so beautifully in your letter about, or letter to Rob, mm. to huge group of strangers which must be so emotionally taxing I wonder whether you've developed boundaries around how much you speak about your grief your loss male suicide mm. the heavy issues have you had to develop boundaries or say no I mean I'm very aware that I am in a unbelievably tiny minority because I'm a woman who speaks about mm. male suicide and there are a few people that I can think of who do it on behalf of their sons, mostly. Um, there are not a huge number of people who will who who feel able to speak about it on behalf of, let's say, losing a spouse. Mm. So I feel that number one, there's just not enough people out there, uh, and number two, um, it's something that makes me feel less hopeless yeah. about losing him but in the first few years so I would say the first you know two to three years um I definitely felt like I should do everything like I should say yes to everything I absolutely should be um an activist where possible and and I think that I am glad that I did it because I think it's quite possibly one of the very few things that actually gave solace around my grief but definitely last year, so this is approaching the fourth year of Rob's death, uh, I felt that I just couldn't really do this for much longer. And I decided that I was just going to maybe stop talking about it altogether. And then I realized that that is not what I wanted. But what I need to do is be very um, considered about the events that I do and when I speak about it. What made you kind of realize that? Because I personally hit a wall around it and I just reached the stage where I just didn't really want to leave my house for about a week and mentally and emotionally I was just completely empty. And I don't know that people understand unless they are doing it themselves but whenever I talk about this stuff there is a huge emotional cost that comes with it mm. and I will need some time to recover from it and so on. But but when you've got days, especially like, you know, things like Mental Health Awareness Week. And so last year it was Suicide Prevention Week, um, the, like a lot of media cluster around, you know, those particular events, even though it, it should be something that we talk about mm. year round and not just one week out of the year. 
but it, I just realized that it was coming at a huge cost. And it's also something where, you know, four years after Rob has passed, there is a lot that I kind of want to do with my life in terms of moving forward and absolutely still doing this kind of work, but just being able to reclaim a bit of the, you know, joy and happiness around it. So my unspoken rule is really, um, is it like, where is this going out to? What is the audience going to be like? Um, you know, what's the reach really? And then I whittle it down to that and consider whether or not it is going to be worth the cost of talking about it. Mm. And then I make a decision around that. I didn't realise until I read your book mm. that you're 65% more at risk of taking your own life if you have been bereaved by suicide. That was like a statistic I had yeah. no idea about. And I guess when we talk about suicide, my perhaps narrow-minded personal view is you think of the person that has taken mm. their life. And when it is the biggest killer in men under 45, yeah. obviously that's the first thing, first number I clutch onto. Mm. And until reading your book, I didn't really selfishly think about the people that it leaves around them yeah. so not only are you speaking for the person who has mm. taken their life but also their spouse their family yeah because it has a massive ripple effect I mean there are people who knew Rob maybe they'd known him for like about six months and they're still affected by it you know um and I think that that is a story that I have heard over and over again that you maybe might have even met that person a handful of times, but there is a part of you that never really lets go of what could I have done about it? You know, could the outcome have been different? Which is why it's such a complicated death compared to some other uh, types of bereavement. But yeah, that statistic shocked me, but I absolutely felt like that. Mm. Like I felt like that every single day for about a year. And I could not honestly tell you what really got me through that. I think it was just that I went to work every day. I kind of saw my friends and family from time to time. I was absolutely ruthless about not doing anything that I did not want to do. If anyone was stressing me out, they just kind of needed to get away from me as far as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I just went into survival mode where there was this kind of, it's something that I guess I touch upon on In Search of Silence, but there's this other part of me that I think just took over a little bit mm -hmm. and was just like, this is what we need to do to be able to get get through this point because, um, because I can see how it happens. Was there a moment or probably an amount of time where purpose or your purpose was lost? Um... I would say that the per I had to create purpose because the only reason why I think if I'm mulling over it that I got through that year, it was because of the activism work that I did, because that was the only thing that really gave me a sense that something was coming out of this black hole of like decay. Mm. Um, and I think also just getting letters from other people who had been through it and who were telling me, you know, several years down the line, this is how they felt. This is how I would feel. That kind of gave me a seed of hope, which was, this is unbelievably awful, but maybe at some point it might get better. Mm. As time goes on, um, your sense of purpose helped you to survive to get to a point where things are less raw and you can kind of add mm. other things that are positive and good in your life around it mm. 
I don't know that your sense of purpose gets stronger around. So what was driving my sense of purpose four years ago is not the same thing mm. that's driving it now. Mm. And also nothing is a is a fixed point. So the things that I was talking about four years ago, um, I've probably changed my viewpoint around somewhat. We know more just in terms of science and so on where they just don't stay the same. I just think that now I've just got more in my life um, that I have actively chosen and and created for myself, um, regardless of what other people think about it. Mm. Can you tell us the one rule that you will never break? <laughs> the one rule that I will never break is being honest in your commitment. Um, as anyone who now knows me will still tell you, um, what you see is what you get. I will not tell you something that is untrue or um, to obfuscate how I'm feeling about something. And it doesn't mean, it's not that line of, oh, I'm just being honest, but, mm. and then someone kind of like gives you this horrific insult. <laughs> but it's more like I, my goal is to be as transparent as I possibly can because I just think that too much time is wasted by people dancing around things. And I think being British, we do that a hell of a lot and I don't really know what it gets us. But I also think that linking back to the idea of commitment is being honest about what you want to do. So not committing, not saying yes to things because you feel some sense of obligation or duty that you might break uh, further down the line. So a classic thing for me is, for example, friends wanting to have stuff booked in to my social calendar, right? Like mm -hmm. four weeks to five weeks down the line. And I've just put my foot down on it because I just said, none of us know what's yeah. going to happen four weeks or five weeks down the line. You might be ill. You might have a really full on week at work. So rather than us committing to a date that about 90% of the time will probably get cancelled or moved, why don't we just kind of like operate a bit more in a real time uh, world where we are a bit more present and a bit more mindful around how we're feeling even if it's like let's say two weeks away I could tell you what my two what my fortnight is going to look like in two weeks I could not tell you what my fortnight is going to look like in four weeks so I think that for me it's about being transparent but also just being upfront about what you want to commit to and I think it saves a lot of aggro when it comes to friendships and I think it sets the right kind of expectations when it comes to work. Have you had anyone that's uh, come back at you for being so honest? <laughs> <laughs> but people do say you're so honest and I like I don't know if that's an insult. Yeah. A compliment and I don't really know what to say uh, so I kind of yeah I do this weird nervous laugh that I did just now but I think it's just this is if I'm being too abrupt or if I have said something in a rude manner, I would rather that people told me. And I definitely think that there's a line between honesty and rudeness mm. and basically being abrupt. But I think that... Um, so I have been told sometimes that I can be a bit abrupt, but I know that the abruptness doesn't really come from honesty. It comes from just having too much stuff on my plate, mm. which is a whole separate issue for a different podcast. <laughs> but I think that in terms of honesty... 
Uh, it is just something that I choose to live my life by. And I think if it's slightly too honest for some people... They can get no- out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> there's just nothing I can do about that. It reminds me, actually, yeah. of your first rule, um, don't bring yourself to work. Mm. Well, actually, you're saying, well, this is me, my full self. Yeah. And if you don't want it, get in a bin. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's so right. It's so cool. Well, I think because also if you are working with people that require you to hide parts of yourself, like that's never going to end. It's not going to end well. Yeah. It just isn't. Yeah. That's why you're such an honest, wonderful black sheep. So thank you so much, Paula. Thank you for having me.